Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. This week we remind you to keep a few gems in your pocket because a hungry Zorn is a helpful Zorn. I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are taking our second dive into the inner planes of D&D, the inner elemental planes. So we are going to be talking about the planes of air and earth today. Yeah, we probably should have broken these up a little bit different. Air and earth, you're going to see considerably less than fire and water just because there's just a little less there. I mean, there's stuff there. It's there, not near as well developed as the uh, fire and water planes are. Uh, Yeah, I can see that. It's just... They're not as easy to navigate. By no means. Especially depending on which edition you're looking at. Because, you know, in, in the older editions, when you go to the plane of Earth, you have to bring your own air with you. Because there is no yeah, air kind of on the plane of Earth. <laughs> I think they have done away with that particular detail in 5th edition. Just That is correct. Just for ease of access. Yeah, now it's just more like an infinite complex of caves. Yeah, it's this labyrinth of ever-shifting caves and such. And it used to be actually just an infinite expanse of stone. It was rock in every direction forever. And you would occasionally find these fissures, these natural passageways through it, or the Tao, the Earth Genies, had their city that they kept clear specifically for interplanar trade. Yes, but once you got outside of a Dow settlement, there wasn't really any uh, rhyme or reason to it. Correct. Now, there was a couple things, and I think they work well with that in 5th edition, but we will definitely get there a little bit later. All right. So before we really got started today, uh, James and I talked a little bit between last episode and this episode, and there are a couple of things that we wanted to talk about before we really got in that pertain to all of the elemental planes in general, uh, spe- yeah. specifically a couple of different groups of creatures. So I'm going to go ahead and let James start off. I felt we were extremely remiss last week, and I will step up and say this one's fully my fault because I've had people tell me that I'm half giant. So we completely forgot to mention giants in this thing. And while you're not going to find giants so much in the elemental planes themselves, they are there more so as we were talking with your portals between the elemental planes and the material planes, you are going to find your giants right on those borders and those gate areas. Specifically, if you look at the breakdown of giants through any number of your monster manuals, your giants are actually largely keyed into elemental. You've got your hill giants for earth, you have fire giants, you have water giants, you have tempest giants or storm giants. So these are all giants that are tied to their elemental plane but they are mostly on the material plane. Yeah, with giants for fire, you've obviously you've got your fire giants. For water, there hasn't been one to come across really in fifth edition, but there were sea giants and ocean giants in and older editions. Frost giants too, which I mean, uh, you start starting bridging some of those in between gaps. But I would frost, still yeah, say frost giants are more the frostfell that transitional plane between water and air. Yes. And there are giants that correlate to some of those as well. I would actually call cloud giants the ones for air, not storm giants. Okay. I would almost put storm giants as one of the transitional, maybe between air, air and fire. fire. I, I could see that. But you have stone giants, which would be earth. And I would actually put hill giants as the transition between earth and water. 
because part of the elemental plane as it transitions into the plane of ooze, which is that transitional plane, is called the Mud Hills. Right. So I would actually put hill giants there. And then let's see here. I think that's all of them so far. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have a... Cloud, fire, sea, and stone Yeah, would be the four primary ones that I would assign. Yes, exactly. And again, those giants are all keyed in towards their element. You will find them primarily on the material plane, though you will also find them, again, probably just on the inside border of your elemental plane. But I mean, giants are giants are giants, and they've been around since forever. We could probably do a whole deep delve on how to homebrew a giant, and that might be you know, something we do later. Mm, but yeah. definitely nothing to sneeze at and absolutely nothing to forget. So at the very least, we did want to bring those back up and say, hey, these are things... Play with them, please. And I will note that I did mention fire giants in the fire plane because there is a notable fire giant contingent in the city of brass. Yes. But yeah, the other variants of giants do permeate the other planes as well. And now the other racial group that I wanted to bring up specifically with relation to the different genies is the genasi because the genasi are half genies. And as a playable race... If you have a Genasi player at your table, you really want to have that opportunity for them to tie into their home plane if you get a chance. So if you've got an Earth Genasi, you should at least try and tie in the elemental plane of Earth at some point in your campaign. Oh, absolutely. If it's going to be a long-running campaign. Same with a Fire Genasi for the Fire Plane, or an Air Genasi for the Air Plane, or a Water Genasi for the Water Plane. So because they are half genie, they're going to have an affinity to a plane. And so you may even have them have some sort of innate advantage whenever they go to one of these planes. You know, maybe they have a passive health regeneration because the elemental creatures of the plane can draw nourishment from the elemental energy of the plane. I like that. I would almost also consider maybe like an elemental resistance a really good story hook you can use is there's a term for it and I am absolutely blanking on the word right now, but it's the opposite of wanderlust. It's like being homesick, but where you're drawn back to like an ancestral place. Right. Like I said, for the life of me, I can't think of the word of it, but to have your genasi like drawn to these points. So like if you had a fae or a dryad, they'd be drawn to the woods. So, you know, whatever element your genasi was from, they'd be drawn to water. They'd be drawn to the mountains. And maybe part of their story arc that you build is that they are somehow trying to get back to an elemental plane just to even visit it because they have this innate desire. And it could be something even along the lines of they're trying to find their genie parentage. Yeah, that'd be kind of cool too. Or they they get drawn into some confrontation because of their genie parentage. So you have an air genasi and suddenly there are either jinn or dao depending on what their genie parent got themselves into, who are starting to come into the material plane and come after them because of something that their genie parent did. I totally want to do this now. I want to have a genasi go to like a sacred grove somewhere where it's a giant tree where the bards live. And the bards and the wizards basically have, you know, Ancestry.com or whatever that is right now. And they do their Ancestry thing. And they, oh, you, you've got Ifrit bloodlines. And so now they want to go to the fire element to figure out the, where their lineage came from or something like that, just as a lighthearted right. thing. But yeah. So those are the things that we wanted to make sure we touched on before we really started diving in this week. Absolutely, yeah. Because they do 
span all of the elemental planes. And there's something that you want to keep in mind if you're going to be taking your campaign into one of the elemental planes as something that you can sprinkle on the top to add a whole bunch of extra flavor. More giants. More giants. All right. So I think we have decided that we're going to start off with the plane of air. Yeah. Now, the plane of air for me, of the four inner planes, this is probably going to be the one you have the least interactions or least encounters with, just because it is difficult. The plane of air is made up of air. (laughs) So with the exception of a few cloud cities or things like that, there's really not a lot going on. Your wilderness is air. Your background is air. Your scenery, air. Your monsters are invisible, and air. <laughs> Not all of them. I mean, Not all you, of them, you but do, a good you do end up you, do, you end up having a lot of stuff. There's a lot mm-hmm. of clouds involved, so you end up having... There are a great many creatures that will hide out in the clouds and ambush other creatures as a way of hunting. And then you end up having basically anything with better than rudimentary intelligence and wings can be found in the plane of air. So you're going to have griffins and hippogriffs and pegasi and coaddle and sphinxes and beholders and any of a number of flying beasties. You know, basically any dragon that you can think of is going to make its way to the plane of air from time to time. Yeah, at some point. This is also very true. So these are all things to sort of keep in mind. Right. Now, I initially was kind of underwhelmed in the plane of air. It kind of seems like the astral plane junior kind of version. It's not as far-fetched, but it has that same any directions possible, everything goes. There is some really neat lore tied up with the planet of air, depending on how far back you want to go with additions and lore and things like that. Bahamut had kept his palace in the planet of air until the spell plague, which was a whole long story arc about where the goddess of magic died and all the magic went absolutely crazy and stuff broke and then more stuff broke. And because stuff was breaking, everybody had to try to take advantage of it. And Bahamut wound up moving from the plane of air to the celestial plane eventually because of events that happened. But before that point, Bahamut, good god of the dragons, plane of air. So again, as Ian tied in, you'll have a lot of dragons in the area that'll come in and out. And that in itself could be a great way to start a campaign or a story is maybe they're trying to reestablish, if not a capital, but definitely a presence or a port or a foothold within the plane of air. Or, you know, even to find Bahamut's old palace. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. You know, find Bahamut's palace so that they could establish a stronghold within the plane of air. And you find out that Tiamat's taken up residence. I have, no, because <laughs> T- Tiamat, Tiamat's bound to the, is she bound, to the first. Is she bound to the yeah, she's No, she's, Tiamat's bound to the first layer of the Nine Hells. Okay, I thought she was she, free. She's bound, okay. she's bound to a demiplane in Avernus. Oh, okay. Well, never mind then. <laughs> well, I mean, we can free her then and then have her. That's why the dragon cult is trying summon to summon her. her. They're trying correct. to break her out. Yes, that is correct. So there's that. Going back to third edition, most of what I picked up for the Plane of Air did come from the third edition Manual of the Planes because the fifth edition DMG just didn't have much. It's got like two thirds of a column on a page. And that is the entire plane of air. Yeah, the planes have largely been neglected, for lack of a better term. I'm sure they're going to get to them soonish at some point, I would imagine. But the amount of lore that they've put into the planes in 5th edition, they've been busy with other projects, I guess we can politely say. Yeah, I mean, they're focusing very heavily on the material plane. And they're focusing on the Nine Hells and the Abyss. Because, you know, demons and devils, that's what sells. Yeah. And I 
I'm really looking forward to eventually getting some more inner plane stuff, some more elemental plane stuff. I guess that means we just have to write it. <laughs> yeah. And again, that may have been what Princes of the Apocalypse was. I think Princes of the Apocalypse dealt with the Princes of Elemental Evil. I'm not 100% certain because I still haven't taken the time to look at it. And I don't have it on my shelf. So I can't just walk over and pick it up off the shelf. Yeah, I've not, I've not collected that book yet either. So, But the Elemental Planes have not received the love that they should have so far. And most of the outer planes haven't either. Yeah, and that's those are things we are going to definitely visit because, again, even just to visit them because of the lore, they definitely need to be. But if you're going to be making your own adventures and your own campaigns and you want to homebrew and build up your own worlds and things like that, there is so, so much to draw from. And... Again, it's a little bit harder in 5th edition where they haven't covered it. You might need to delve back into 2nd, 3rd, or even 1st edition, but oh no, I mean, heaven forbid you go and visit some old roots. And this is actually one of the places where 4th edition was actually really good. They did a lot of lore building in 4th edition. I am seeing that more and more, I agree. Yeah, the mechanical side of 4th edition was lackluster, but the lore side was actually pretty solid. So one of the big things about the plane of air in third edition was that it had subjective gravity. So it's like with the plane of water, like we talked last week, down is the direction you decide it is. And that's how you move yourself through the plane of air. And if you don't know that you're going to the plane of air and you don't know that you can decide that another direction is down, you're just going to drop. You're going to drop feet first through whatever empty void there is, and you're just going to keep going until you smack one of the few solid objects <laughs> in the plane. Right. You have the same thing in the um, astral plane as well. And so. Yeah, but in the astral plane, you don't move unless you think where you want to go. Right. The plane of air, gravity still exists, and you will still move according to gravity. If you don't choose. Correct, yes. So this is kind of cool, though, because, again, if your character can roll that intelligence check or whatnot, as Ian said, you can choose which way is down. So that makes you fairly maneuverable. And you can all but fly just by changing your perspective. And you still have a disadvantage to creatures that can naturally fly. Because you aren't flying, you are falling with purpose. Falling with style. Are we summoning Buzz Lightyear now? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Woody. <laughs> but because you're not actually propelling yourself, if you're flying, then you are actually propelling yourself in a direction. Right. Whereas with gravity, deciding where gravity is, you're picking a direction. Let's say you're picking some direction in front of you is down. Well, you're going to keep going. You're going to keep picking up speed that way until you decide that you need to stop for whatever reason, and then you have to throw down behind you, you still have that momentum going, so you're still going to go until gravity picks up and slingshots you back. Whereas if you're flying, you have complete control over which direction you're going. So I have a DM question for you. Okay. So as the old saying goes, I don't have a fear of falling, it's the sudden stop at the end. So your character pops him or herself into the plane of air and plummets for however long before they realize the whole subjective gravity thing. And they freak out and they want to go back to where they're falling. So they flip everything just a full 180 degrees and now they're falling up. So going from a full acceleration down to a full gravity acceleration up, are you going to make them take fall damage? Not if they don't collide with something solid. Okay. I just figured the sudden jolt would I be mean, enough to... 
Well, no, it's a sudden change in the direction of gravity. You still have the same amount of momentum. It's just that acceleration is going in the other direction now. Okay. So your speed would slow with the reversed acceleration until it hit zero, and then then it would go in the other direction. Okay, perfect. That makes... I was working that with my brain. I'm like, so do you just jolt and get like a really bad case of whiplash? But your answer, physics is fun is a perfect <laughs> a, a perfect way to do that. So well done. Yeah, but you know, once you hit terminal velocity and you're going like 580 feet per round, it's going to take a hot minute <laughs> when you reverse gravity right. for you to turn around and actually start falling the other direction. Um, so you're actually going to want, once they figure out exactly how to do it, they're going to be basically alternating the direction of gravity. Trying to plan so ahead. As to, no, so as to control their speed oh yeah that's what i was thinking i was planning ahead so if you want to get to a certain point so i'm going to fall so far for so many rounds i'm going to reverse gravity so i can slow down and approach so like okay i've got to be two moves ahead (laughs) yeah but like if you're trying to travel a distance right yes and you're not sure what's out there and you want to be able to slow down and maneuver if you need to you might do like Three seconds, gravity in front of me, one gravity behind me, three in front of me, one behind me. Just, you know, stagger it like that. So you can keep up. So that you're still going forward, but you throw that, basically you're tapping the brakes as you go to control your speed. No, yeah, I'm good with that. I was thinking, like I said, if you're trying to get to a point or trying to like, if you had a hippogriff sitting there doing its wingy thing and just kind of holding place and hovering and you're like, trying to get there and not fly past them. I meant to stop there, so I reversed it right before I got to it. Yeah, so again, the plan of error can be really, really tricky. It really can be. I wasn't expecting to go into... Physics? Theoretical (laughs) physics. How we're theoretically going to maneuver in a world of, you know, no ground where you get to decide which way is down. If you're going to be DM, you got to be on your toes and be ready for this kind of stuff. Yeah, you do. Um, <laughs> so let that be a lesson to all of you listening out there, because this could happen to you. So like James said, the bulk of the plane of air is open air. You have your storms throughout that you have clouds and your cyclones and your thunderstorms and all of that. And they are still a very present danger. Even the native creatures to the plane of air don't go into thunderstorms because they're big and mean and nasty and they're just a thunderstorm. You don't have any sort of protection from that. Yeah, there's no aerial protection from lightning. No. So these creatures still avoid thunderstorms and those sorts of things. Also because the winds can be very chaotic and you get picked up by the winds in one of these thunderstorms and you end up getting battered around in there for a couple of hours and then they spit you out and you have no idea where you are with relation to anything else. And you don't know which way's up. And as we've discussed previously, this would be a problem. That would be a problem. (laughs) I think another hazard that I would consider that I haven't seen anybody put into text yet. You're in the elemental plane of air. We've already determined storms are a thing. What about a hailstorm? If you fly into a hailstorm going max speed and then you've got a hailstorm coming, that's like walking into a shotgun blast device. Yeah, that would be nasty. Even if you were going perpendicular if you're not coming at it from the bottom and you know meeting it head on if you just fly face first into the side of a hailstorm going at 580 feet per round that's gonna hurt yeah i mean that's 
<laughs> that's just going to ruin anybody's day. Even if it's only that pea-sized stuff, but, I mean, you get some of those big hailstorms in the Midwest where, you know, like that golf ball-sized hail. Softball-sized hail. Yeah, that's yeah. just a big old bag of nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's going to ruin your day. That's where the DM pulls out his ice tray and just throws it at the player. It's a hailstorm. Just throws it at everybody. <laughs> Forget the ice cube tray. It's, they just pull out the 10-pound bag of ice. Yeah, I do that too. And they huck it at <laughs> Use like a flail. Just sling it around. Okay, official podcast note. Please do, do not, not assault your players with ice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they told us to. No, we did not tell you to. We are specifically telling you not to do that right now. That would be terrible. Terrible if you did that to your player. Terrible. <laughs> we are not going to be legally culpable when they press charges for assault. <laughs> but again, there are some things. And like every elemental plane, there are a few permanent city foundation things where you can shop, find the things you need to do, have some campaign twists. And I think you have a little bit more on those than I do, Ian, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So... In 3rd edition, it was called the Citadel of Ice and Steel. In 5th edition... That's kind of an awesome name. Yeah, it is. Um, in 5th edition, they're they're calling it Aka, A-A-Q-A. So the Citadel of Ice and Steel is where the Grand Caliph of the Jinn lives with the Wind Dukes. The Wind Dukes, they aren't mentioned in the 3rd edition Manual of the Plains. They are mentioned in later text, I think starting in 4th edition. They are the Jinn that are organized to fight the elemental evils. So they really came to prominence with the Temple of Elemental Evil the adventure, if I'm remembering correctly. I could be completely wrong on this. Don't quote me on it. But the Citadel of Ice and Steel is where the Grand Caliph lives. And it's a whole bunch of courts and gardens and labyrinths all just sort of stacked up on one another. And there are no stairs because it's the plane of air. So visitors to the citadel they'll usually get a djinn as a guide who will take them where they need to go through the citadel if they need to and the citadel itself is surrounded it says it's orbited by smaller citadels where the viziers the advisors to the grand caliph or uh powerful lesser caliphs that's where they live and they sort of just orbit around the citadel of ice and steel And this is the part that really got my creative juices going. At the heart of the Citadel is a windowless cell. It is sealed up. It is guarded against all teleportation magic. It's guarded against scrying magic. It has strong magical defenses that prevent tampering with it. And all that is known is that the Grand Caliph's greatest enemy is imprisoned inside of it. Oh my, that is a wonderful... The identity of the entity is unknown whatever crimes it is guilty of are unknown all that is known is that the grand caliph's greatest enemy is inside this cell and that's one of those wonderful things where it's a who is it it leaves so much to the imagination that kind of writing really harkens back to like poe and lovecraft and i mean there are so many and there there are a couple of obvious possibilities that came to my mind the first one was it's got to be a very powerful dao a very powerful earth genie. That was my first idea. My second idea, because I really started reading into the Princes of Elemental Evil, and I started reading into an article that James found in a back issue of Dragon Magazine, and i trying to remember his name. I think it's Yan Bin, the Prince of Evil Air, and it talks about his greatest fear being imprisonment and being confined, and I want, I would actually almost say that 
Yancey Bin is the entity imprisoned at the heart of the Citadel of Ice and Steel. You could build just an amazing case for that. So that would be what I would put in that cell. Absolutely. And again, going back with some of these older monsters or older creatures, you could really dive into some old lore and come up with just all kinds of stuff. And I just wanted to touch on this. The reason why I would put him in over a Tao, over an Earth Genie, is that on the plane of air, the Jinn don't fear the Tao. Because it's their home turf, the Tao would have a distinct disadvantage. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it could be an extremely powerful Tao, as long as that Tao stayed on the plane of Earth, there would be nothing there. But the Prince of Evil Elemental Air. Yeah, that's perfect because it's a perfect counter. There's no, obviously, elemental advantage. And at this point, you want to keep that big bad hidden away. It already innately has a fear of being imprisoned. And it is the one entity that would directly oppose the Grand Caliph's control over the plane of air. Absolutely. If it broke loose, the Caliph would have to subdue it or risk losing his control over the plane of air. Yes, absolutely. So that would being this, I think they use the term arco-elemental, this overpowered elemental, this everything evil about air has been condensed into this creature. That entity would be powerful enough to challenge the Grand Caliph and probably even take him out if they came face to face in a fair fight. I mean, that is a very real possibility. The other thing I like about having the Yancey bin in there is because it is such a little known monster. I mean, everyone, no matter the player, no matter how hard they try, is going to be metagaming at least a little bit. It's just, we can try our best not to, but whether you're calculating an armor class or a hit cool die or whatever in your head when you're fighting a monster to flipping through the book and, oh, I know what this big bad is, so, okay, fine, here, have your book. So little is known about this monster, even throughout lore, because it's been imprisoned, that, I mean, they would have to dig really deep to find something as obscure as this monster that it's there if you look for it but you don't encounter you don't hear about the yancey bin all the time so a creature that even by lore if it's locked away so people don't know about it makes it even better so like i said just thematically it fits story-wise it fits elementally pun intended it fits everything it is a perfect thing to stick in that box you know when i was reading that article and i came across that particular paragraph in that article i was like that's it That's what it's got to be. So if I ever run anything in the plane of air, that's what I'm throwing in that cell. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. (laughs) There's one other thing as a natural hazard that I have for the elemental plane of air. Smog. Smoke clouds. (laughs) I was close. And it is specifically brought up in the third edition manual of the planes is that you have areas where the winds are lulled and smoke from ancient battles and stuff will stand there and every so often the wind picks it up and you end up having this wall of smoke that just starts passing through the plane of air naturally it's going to obscure your vision the same way that the clouds are in third edition whenever you entered the smoke it followed the smoke rules laid out in the dmg so the first turn you enter is a dc 15 fort save and if you fail that fort save you lose your turn because you're 
sitting there sputtering and coughing. And the fort save increases by one every turn that you're in smoke. Oh, wow. And if you fail multiple turns in a row, each turn after the first that you fail consecutively, you take 1d6 non-lethal damage. I like it. And this really has, I mean, this has a good mirror back because like even in the plane of fire, you have like the cerulean lava where it's creating basically a cloud of acid over the lava that affects an area. In the plane of water, you have the various corals and things like that that produce like an acidic or toxic area of gas. The red tide, yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. And so this is that kind of, again, that toxic environmental hazard Aside from monsters coming, birds sitting there grabbing you from behind and plucking out all your hair, walking into a hailstorm, getting struck by lightning. There's just bad air sometimes. Right. So let's talk a little bit about some natural portals, how you might get to the plane of air without a seventh level spell. I'm just going to go ahead right now. I'm invoking the Wizard of Oz. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Tornadoes are going to do it. Whether or not you see a witch riding a bike while this happens, up to the DM, but absolutely tornadoes and cyclones are definitely a thing. Yeah, there's actual mention in the DMG of the peaks of mountains where the wind constantly blows are an area where the boundary between the material plane and the plane of air thins. So that would be a way to transition from one to the other. What was that sky temple you referenced the other week? Oh, yeah, the one in China? Yeah, I mean, that's a perfect example of that. And for the life of me, again, I'm just off today. I can't remember words. I can't remember names. I'm just having a day. But that would be an absolute textbook case of that, where it's built up high just to be close to the heavens. And it is, in fact, so high that it is a portal to the elemental plane of air. Okay, so I just scrolled back through the Discord just so I could find this. I just did as well. Fengenshan? It's Fengenshan. Yeah, there we go. My pronunciation of Chinese may be atrocious. If you speak Chinese and you're listening to this and I butchered it, I'm sorry. As far as you know. Um, and I think it's <laughs> I think it's in... Uh, I think it's pronounced Guizhou. Your enunciation's as close as anything as mine's going to be. I'm not even going to okay. touch that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Feng Jingshan is this temple on top of this basically monolith mountain. And they built it because at the time, the belief was that the higher the elevation of the temple, the closer it was to the heavens and therefore the more divine energy or whatever. I apologize. I, I'm not real familiar with buddhist religious practices but it was closer to the heavens so it had some extra level of divinity to it right another really easy pop culture reference if you've seen avatar the last airbender obviously where they have the air temples again very high up something with a long drop would make perfect sense i would almost and again this would be the summer fan me that would want to do this but a bungee jump portal so like a place that's high up that did like a, a particularly high bungee jump and it just blip and you blip through because you've fallen so far that it just at a little instantaneous portal and you blip out or something like that would be it would definitely be something where it would be uh, a mountain where it is constantly surrounded by this cloud bank and the peak comes out above the clouds and you would have to jump off of the top of the mountain through the clouds and it would be while you were passing through the clouds that you would transition into the airplane so again growing up on the west coast and if you want to use your google food this is generally a really good thing to search but mount shasta was an active volcano way back when i believe it's still considered active 
but where it's at the peak of it is normally surrounded by a cloud bank. So it's one of those where you've got that low and then the peak does stick out. So you talk about that where you have the peak and then the clouds beneath and then regular air. And that very much reminds me of Mount Shasta, um, which is just an absolutely beautiful mountain, very scenic. So totally that would fit perfectly right in through there as well. And specifically, I would put these near Aries where Aarakocra live because Aarakocra are native to the plane of air in the same way that Tritons are native to the plane of water. So that would be a location that I would go for. And then when in doubt, you've always got your seventh level spell. Plane plane shift. shift, Yeah. All right. So I think that pretty well covers what we got in the plane of air. Yeah. Like I said, the plane of air is a little more difficult. It's definitely a bit more abstract. And now we get some good terra firma back beneath our feet. This makes me considerably more comfortable. Up is up, down is down, and the world just might collapse on top of you. (laughs) Yeah. I think it is safe to say that James and I are both earth affinity people yeah definitely i mean he's a lapidary i'm a vocationally trained welder so we are firmly in the plane of earth yes absolutely both of us a little closer towards the plane of fire but still solidly in the plane of earth no i'm I'm solidly plane of earth without question give me the shiny stuff give me the stones give me the gems i'm there so as ian had mentioned before in previous editions the elemental plane of earth was just a big giant brick of earth and you kind of tunneled your way through it as best you could certain earth creatures there could actually just kind of slip through they had like a weird stone walk which is some things that popped up in some of my old fantasy books that i used to love now and that's and that's actually still something that some creatures in fifth edition have like the earth elemental it's called earth glide so yes still a thing it's still a thing and the creatures native to the plane of earth are capable of doing that yes now it's more like a complex of caves so like if you were to go to like a crystal caverns or something nearby where you live with a bunch of stalactites and stalagmites so there's areas where you can have little creeks or ponds or waters and aquifers going through you don't have to bring your own air that's definitely a plus that is definitely a plus you have pools of magma and lava that kick back so again you can heat your metals you can do your things really this is like heaven to a dwarf or a gnome they're just kind of not not exactly it'd be heaven if the dow weren't there oh yeah granted okay i can't argue with that much i mean the dow are still the genies and the dow are kind of dicks for multiple reasons they're they're, they're not kind of (laughs) they are notably untrustworthy i was trying to be diplomatic (laughs) no they come out and say it I was trying to be diplomatic. When it comes to overall douchebaggery, I have a hard time trying to figure out who's worse, the Ifrit or the Dao. The Dao. You think you, really you're going to go with the Dao? I mean, because the Ifrit, because the Ifrit are lawful, you know where they stand. If they make a promise, they will keep it. The Dao are not. Bribery is expected amongst the Dao. You are expected to pay for everything, and if that stream turns off. Or if you don't give them as much as they think they deserve, they will turn on you and null and void any agreement that they made. Thus they will do. And that's the very tip of the iceberg for the doubt. Though I guess I wouldn't be an iceberg in the plane of Earth. I, I don't know what we'd use. Like tip of the slagmite, maybe? <laughs> yeah, the tip of the boulder. But to the point where the Ifrit are the only entities that will actually trade regularly with the Dow. Actually, no, there is one other group. 
Yeah, they the Dow will go into the Underdark and do trade with the Drow and the Dwargar. Because the Dow on Drow action? Oh my. And so what are they trading with the Drow for? Slaves. Slaves. So they can sell them to the Ifrit. So we've got the full douchebaggery trifecta going on right here. We've got the Ifrit, the Drow, and the Dow with a giant slave trade going on through all three planes. Dear God, we need a campaign just so we can raffle stomp these fools. The Dow want slaves for themselves. They're using slave labor to harvest the metals and the gems that they're selling to, to the, the to the Ifrit, the metals that they're selling to the Ifrit and the gems that they're using as currency to get slaves from the Dwargar and the Drow. Right, though the Ifrit do purchase those slaves as well because that is also part of the section within the city of Brass, unfortunately. So like I said, we just need a campaign just to go in here and raffle stomp these fools just because they really need to be raffle stomped. And the other thing that they do that they have slaves for is to maintain all of the open passages around the city of jewels because the plane of earth is constantly shifting. And so you end up having these massive earthquakes. You end up having tunnels that just stop existing. Ghost tunnels. Those things are so creepy. Oh my God. Like the concept of that kind of gives me the willies a lot. (laughs) Yeah. You'll be in the plane of earth and you'll be traveling down a passageway and then suddenly the passageway in front of you just shifts and is a dead end. And the passageway behind you may have shifted as well. And now you're stuck in rock forevermore. Yep, pretty much. So the one thing I did want to bring up, as we talked about now, that the elemental plane of Earth over the versions of D&D have shifted over time. It has changed from just a big old brick of mud and stone to this giant complex labyrinth of caves going way way back to some of our first episodes and we talked about this eternal blood feud between the kobold and the gnomes because uh, girl glitter gold imprisoned curdle mock right curdle mock into a you know eternal underground labyrinth was curdle mock trapped within the plane of earth possibly it explained why they can't find him on the material plane i would have to go back and look at the lore it's possible. The lore says it is an eternal underground labyrinth. I mean, it could be there. It could be, and this is something that we'll bring up later, it could be on the plane of Bytopia, which is where Girl Glittergold lives. Okay. It's a very mining, crafting sort of plane. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. So, yeah, I was reading those and I thought back about that. And, like, to me, that ties up so many loose ends. It's why the kobolds can't find them on the material planes. It would be perfect because, again, you have these ghost tunnels. So whenever, you know, Colonel Mock starts making any kind of progress and poof, the tunnel shift, you know, behind him or around him or seal him in until, you know, another ghost tunnel pops up that he can move through. Like I said, this seems to fit really well for me. Again, if you're world building, your world, your lore, you can do whatever you want. But yeah, I like good that. To me. I like that. So talking a little bit about the city of Jules, the home of the Dow, it is located within the Great Dismal Delve, which is the largest cavern system within the plane of Earth, also referred to as the Sevenfold Maze Work. Again, the Dismal Delve. You know what? I'm going to tip my hat to the people that did the naming. It's not near as awesome as the Citadel of Ice and Steel, but the Dismal Delve, I mean, I'm going to go here, and this just sounds like, it sounds like where you used to go to work every day and say, okay, I find them going to Dismal (laughs) Delve. (laughs) Yeah, that's about right. But one of the neat things about it is because the Dow are so 
extremely untrusting of anyone, even other DAO. Yes, they will allow... Understandably so, again. <laughs> yes, they will allow outsiders into the city to do trade. Yes, they will do that, and they will be on the lookout, almost at a fey level, looking for a slight. And because the DAO, if they remain on the plane of Earth, are essentially immortal, because they are entities of earth energy and so if you kill them they just disperse into the plane and eventually they will congeal back into another entity because of all of that they are almost paranoid in their search for what's the word i'm looking for uh conspiracy oh okay (laughs) no not bob ross they wanted some happy trees i mean it's dismal in there they needed some happy trees to kind of lighten things up and their search for conspiracy and their need to keep tabs on what they claim is theirs. So the city of jewels is built entirely out of precious metals and precious gems entirely. It sounds beautiful. I mean, I'm, I'm really wanting to visit this place. Name aside, kind of wanting to visit this place. The way you described the paranoia, I'm kind of reminded of the smoking man and the X-Files It's kind of that, you know, there's a conspiracy and a secret behind everything. Everybody's playing everybody off of everybody. You can, believe maybe every third word from their mouth i mean really if you want a good nebulous enemy someone that can come way out of left field and you don't know if they're telling you the truth or they're spinning something sideways the dow are really good plus you can beat the crap out of them and not feel bad about it i mean really that's <laughs> you've got zombies you've got nazis you've got the dow i mean right there there's your hierarchy of okay let's slaughter everything and then not feel bad. Yeah, you don't have to feel bad murder hoboing slavers. <laughs> but one of the things that was mentioned in the third edition manual is the bulk of their slaves are individuals who lost bets with the Dow, the humanoid slaves. So, I mean, again, this is going to play into they're going to be tricksters. They're going to go on fey level, technically. I'm speaking the truth and setting up the terms of whatever contest with the difference being that they can lie, which yes, the fake can't. Right. And if it's going poorly for them, they might just change the rules. Yes. Just flat out change. The I rules. was going to say a, a Dow versus Faye battle of wills would be really fun with the exception that the Dow can just lie, which kind of breaks the rest of it. But otherwise that would be a glorious thing to see. But getting back to the city and it being made of precious metals and gemstones, there's an enchantment over the entire city. If anyone steals even a single gemstone, you know, just a single gemstone slips it in their pocket and walks out of the city. That's ill-advised. They know. I'm telling you now, DM note, tell my players, you can do it if you want, but as a DM, I'm letting you know, (laughs) ill-advised. Ill-advised. Because not only will the Dow know, but the Dow will go to great lengths to get it back. And the punishment for theft is death. Not just of you, but of all of your friends and of all of your relations. Death on you, death on your cow. Yes. <laughs> so not only will they come after your character, they'll go after your character's parents and their siblings and their kids and their significant other, and their friends, so all of the party, and possibly all of the party's families, they're going to go complete scorched earth. 
because that's the punishment for theft in the city of jewels. And now again, if you needed yet another plot hook to use the Tao, because dear God, why do we need a plot hook? That would be a good one is that, you know, some ill-advised adventurer went and decided to steal a piece of gravel off their streets paved with gold, as it were. And so the Tao went on full on retribution and maybe the person for your party, their second cousin was related to this. And so, you know, because of a family member of this thief, they were killed and now their spouse, partner, life mate, whatever, best friend, wants revenge on the Tao because they have no clue and they had no clue about what said family member, you know, 20 levels removed did. And so now all they know is the Tao came up and wiped out maybe the partner and their kids because they are wiping out that family line. But then, well, you're married, so you don't count. And I would actually see this as a good plot line for someone who is playing an Earth Genasi. If you wanted to play the, you know, the murder hobo orphan card, because that is a thing that people do sometimes, is that that is the reason why your humanoid parent is dead. Yes, that would fit really well. And that you are being hunted by agents of the Tao, whether they actually stole something or whether it was just something that they were accused of having stolen. Because the Tao would just wipe you out even on an accusation, most likely. Just to be sure. Just in case. All right. Now that we have established why the Tao are dicks... Let's talk about let's talk about <laughs> some uh, let's talk about some of the hazards that you could run into in the plane of Earth. So starting off with some creatures, obviously the Dow and the Earth elementals, like we've been talking, mephits, because mephits are everywhere. Mephits in are the just fun. and the mephits again in the plane of air too. They do have their mephits. We should not have glossed over them. They are there along with everything else. But specifically in the third edition manual of the planes, it refers to methods as being as common and as much of a nuisance in the plane of Earth as rats on the material plane. I like it. So these guys are freaking everywhere. They're everywhere. They're getting into everything. And they're pranksters. They're not malicious, but they are mischievous most of the time. So I think of like a pixie for the Feywild where they just kind of want to go and stir the pot as much as they can and laugh about it. The methods are kind of going to be on the same page. And then you've got a couple of specific types of elemental creature. The Galabdur, which are a more good aligned earth elemental creature. They're commonly tied together with druids that have a bit more of an earth affinity they're drawn into the material plane to guard druidic locations with a tie to the elemental earth and the other one is the zorn as james mentioned in our opening little bit that that kind of ugly. they are yeah they're described as a bowling ball with three legs and three arms and a giant mouth on the top i like it kind of ugly. yeah they're not pretty they are not pretty at all they've got some really neat features though one they don't eat meat all right, I'm cool with that. They can't digest meat, which is... A, they'll eat the crap out of your armor, though. That's oh, like yes. candy to them. <laughs> Absolutely. And they, like the standard Earth Elementals, they have Earth Glide, so they will just phase through the wall. Right. These guys are going to use a lot of your ambush tactics, so you're going to be walking, and like if you've somehow angered these things, like I said, they're going to pop up in front of you, maul you, and then just sink back into the Earth before you realized what happened. And then do the same thing right on top of your head. One of the things that I saw as a possible scenario is you know you're going through a hallway and a zorn comes out in front of you and demands all of your gems all of your shiny bits all of your shiny bits because another fun fact is that they can smell a gemstone from 60 feet away 
yeah, that is a really cool thing. And beyond that, they can smell magical metal from twice that far. So if you've got a magical shiny on them, like if you've got like the pierced nipple ring of charisma, they're definitely going to want that. I don't, I, I don't know why you picked that. Why you picked that specifically? Because it would break your brain just for uh, that moment that you, you stuttered just for half a second. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But the scenario was this one Zorn comes out and demands all of your shiny bits. And if you don't pay up, he's got four or five Zorn buddies right underneath you in the floor. And they never know when you might have an accident. And so if that Zorn that's confronting you makes the call, you end up not fighting one Zorn, but you end up having five more Zorn coming up one under each of your feet and just starting to chomp from the ankles up. So that is definitely something to be aware of. Yeah, and the Zorn is one of those creatures, it doesn't get a lot of love. It really doesn't. Mainly because it's uggo. I mean, it's definitely not one of your pretty creatures. Going back, it shared a page in the first edition Monster Manual with the Wraith and the Wyvern. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it didn't have... It was up against stiff competition from the beginning. Absolutely. And again, that's just... The unfortunate bit of being placed alphabetically and, you know, nothing starts with X. But also that said, as we mentioned in the beginning, a hungry Zorn can be a helpful Zorn. So if you can toss it some cookies, it might just be able to lead you to where you're wanting to go. Yes. So in addition to that, other creatures that you might run into, anything that can burrow. So purple worms, umber hulks, onkegs, the thakwa, like I mentioned in the Plane of Fire last week, they pop up here too. So any of those would be individual creatures that you might run into. Something that popped up during my research that I thought was really neat, and this is more a third edition that hasn't apparently been ported to fifth edition yet, but the chrysomals, and they're basically crystal animals, so they're just made up with a bunch of pointy crystals, and they can take the form pretty much of any material plant animal you can imagine. So they're just going to run around, but they've got a couple little neat bits to them. They have resistance to fire and cold-based magic, They have stone to flesh, but they also have a shatter ability. So again, kind of like where we talked about the fist of stone monks that we made up. It's kind of that thing. So you have that ability to shatter and kind of throw a bunch of an area effect damage. That's a really neat thing. The art for these things are really, really neat too. So just like a giant crystal spider. The one that was shown that I seen initially was a scorpion. Any animal you could think of, these things could pop and they still have that earth glide and all that everything else with it as well. Yeah, those are all. And I've actually got a third edition creature that I'm going to bring up here in just a minute. I'm going to end on it because it's really cool. Awesome. I I can't wait to hear it. Okay, so the next batch of creatures, because you will find veins of precious metal and veins of uncut gems within the plane of Earth, naturally dragons are going to be attracted to it. Really? Again, specifically ones that have a burrow speed so like the blues and the coppers we're gonna find some dragons next to the shiny stuff and based on the most recent batch of unearthed arcana that's come out gemstone dragons yes oh my gemstone dragons you're gonna find those in the plane of earth yes which are really really cool so in the campaign i am running for my friend and his family currently i have a dragon born that is a adamantine dragon kind of beefy so because they're larger he's actually considered a large size creature and he's got a plus two to his con but so far an interesting character it's it's been kind of fun so in addition to dragons naturally you're gonna have dwarves and gnomes because 
again, subterranean creatures going after metal, going after gems. Dwarves a little bit more than gnomes. Gnomes are more of a stay in the dirt kind of race, but they do get into the stone a little bit. So, And as we mentioned before, you're also going to have a remarkably sizable number of drow. Again, they are there for their trade. As your natural portals are going to be, they're obviously going to be deeper in the earth. So Underdark is going to be prime location for some of these portals as well. So uh, you're, I can never say this right. The Sniffleblin? Snurfneblin. Snurfneblin. I can never say that right. We'll have those there as well. So again, most of your Underdark creatures, perfectly at home on the plane of earth. So you're going to end up having from a giant side, you're going to have stone giants. You're going to have... Potentially ogres and trolls, and maybe even some hill giants. I'd throw some golanoids in there. Just, I mean, there's no reason why there wouldn't be kobolds running around in these areas as well. well. Yeah, kobolds aren't goblinoids anymore. But They're not yes. goblinoids, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, there's that. And now for the big cool thing. Okay. There's this creature in the 3.5 monster manual called a delver. Ooh. They're a huge aberration. They subsist on eating rock. They like non-metallic minerals, so like gemstones. They treat them the same way that humanoids would treat seasonings on food. Oh. They are known to eat earth elementals in Zorn. Oh my. And here's the fun thing. They're neutral by default, and metal is an intoxicant for them. So if you run into one and you want some help, first off, you have to speak either Terran or Undercommon, because those are the languages that they know. But if you can throw it some coins as a pick-me-up, it will really like you and it will help you out. Okay. I am a terrible person for this and I apologize ahead of time. But if you want to roll, I'm a big nasty campaign and you don't necessarily want to play just, you know, a straight-laced good guy. If you kind of want to roll the chaotic neutral to neutral evil aspect of things, you get a group of these and you kind of hold them back so they're really they're jonesing for that intoxicating metal. And then you just bring up like a small army of these things up to the Dismal Delve and just unleash them on the city of metal and jewels. Yeah, um, especially since it is specifically mentioned that they can become addicted to metal. Yes. And I'm sure like particularly precious metals, your rare earths or whatnot. I mean, if you want to get into your chemistry... Maybe those are like the harder to find. Maybe they, they pack a little bit more of a punch, as it were. But well, I'm sure that something like platinum would be like that. That would be straight cocaine. Yeah, platinum, lithium, molybdenum, something like that. Yeah, some cobalt. That, that, that oh, would be yeah, cobalt. Oh my, there we go. There we go. Now we're giving them a you know a metallic speedball here. <laughs> but absolutely, and just just use these to siege that city. Maybe some drow did you rotten and you lived long enough to want revenge. So, and they are huge creatures. So they are 15 feet long, 10 feet tall, 6,000 pounds. Oh yeah. These would be a lovely wrecking ball. And the nasty thing for fighting them is they're coated in this corrosive slime. So if you attack them with non-magical weapons, or if you have non-magical armor and they hit you, every hit gives a minus one to whatever is on that item when it hits minus five it dissolves i like it and that is something too that has really been left out in 5e is your equipment breaking down it was definitely more of an issue in second and third edition because it's bookkeeping it is bookkeeping it's not fun (laughs) says you it's not fun to keep track of that says you (laughs) i don't know but yeah and that is one thing with bookkeeping and as we've got things like D&D Beyond and Roll20, and a lot more can be kept with like a companion computer to kind of keep 
track of stats and things. I would imagine this bookkeeping stuff would be a little more, they would deal a little bit more with it because they could kind of offload that work. But I guess it stops being pen and paper at that point, I suppose. Okay, so that pretty much does it for creatures that I would bring up. Yeah, I mean, that's plenty. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting stuff you can deal with. You've got evil genies. You've got pretty much anything in the Underdark. You've got weird monsters that can smell metal. You've got even weirder monsters that get addicted to metal. We've got all of your dragons. Now we're throwing in gym dragons on top of this. Now there's not enough stuff in here. What else can we do? <laughs> so you know how the plane shift spell puts you in the general vicinity of where you want to go? Generally, yeah. So one of the big hazards of going to the plane of Earth is that you teleport into rock. That is an issue. I agree. So one of the things it's called getting entombed on transit. So you would actually end up bamfing into solid stone, being unable to move. And if you can't generate your own air or if you can't do something like shatter or some similar magical thing that will allow you to move without somatic components. So without moving your hands. Because you can still talk. You're just stuck physically. So unless you have a way to magically break yourself loose, you're stuck there. Again, DM note, entombing yourself in stone, ill-advised. If Carrier wants to do it, they can do it. But ill-advised. <laughs> I wouldn't do this lightly. I would definitely do this as a one character in the party gets stuck in rock and it's pretty close to the edge and they have to find them and dig them out before they suffocate. They may or may not look like Han Solo in the Carbonite. <laughs> so there's that. And whenever you're digging in the elemental plane, you can come across one of these. The generic term that they use in the third edition book is fossils. So it's just anything that got trapped in the rock is considered a fossil. So it could be a living adventurer that's just stuck. Well, it could be no longer living. It could be a no longer living adventurer. And if they were powerful enough to cast the spell to get here, you might have some good magical loot on that body. Woohoo, score. It could be a corporeal undead or a construct that doesn't need to breathe or eat to live. In which case, you've got a whole different set of problems on your hands. You might have something that really, really happy to see you, or you might just have unburied a lid. Or it might be really happy. To see you. Yes. Because it's hungry. Hungry. I've not eaten in four millennia. <laughs> so there's those options. They have things called elemental pockets. So you'd be digging along and you run into a spot where one of the other planes pushes into the plane of Earth. So you'll hit a pocket of elemental fire. Nice little magma pool. Or, you know, just you break through a wall and this giant inferno backburns down the tunnel. Sucking all of the air out of it. Again, this would be problematic. <laughs> this would be bad, okay? It could break into a pocket of elemental water, which, depending on your orientation, could be a really bad thing. Yeah. It could run into a pocket that is actually a void, so a vacuum, and it sucks everything into it. Which, if it's a small pocket, that might not be a big deal. If the pocket is, you know, a couple of miles across... 
Definitely. That could be a big problem. Now, another game that has handled this really well, Dwarf Fortress. And there are points where you can dig too deep and you can run into all of these things. You can run into void pockets. You can run into monsters. You can actually strike aquifers and it just floods everything out. So yeah, these are all definitely issues within the uh, elemental plane. And then the reason why you'd be digging in all of this is because you can find pure metal and gem seams. All the shiny stuff. All the shiny stuff. So you have a chance to come across a seam of pure precious metal. So pure silver, pure gold, pure platinum. Mithril. You or mithril, yeah. Mithril. And then you take the mithril to your favorite dwarven blacksmith, and he makes you some really, really awesome armor. <laughs> so the seams, according to third edition, will produce 1,000 gold worth of metal per hour for 4d10 hours that's how long it takes you to completely mine out the seam so you can have anywhere from four to forty thousand gold worth of this metal whatever you pull out and this is why we go to the elemental plane of earth and this is why you have to be careful because if the Tao catch you doing this they will be very unhappy or they'll be very happy because now they've got a bunch of mined metal and and some slaves that can dig it. Exactly. <laughs> Congratulations, you've been volunteered. And then with the gem seams, if you find a gem seam, you can find 2d10 gems with the value being based off of the appropriate crafting skill. In 3rd edition, it was craft gem cutting. In 5th edition, I would call it proficiency with jewel crafters tools. Yes. So being able to pick out the ones that are actually worth a lot and being able to remove them in a way that keeps them mostly intact so that you can have the bigger stone to work with. So this would be great if you were, say, using our magic item crafting guide and you needed some gems to enchant some stuff. Yes, this would be a great way to do that. Also, if you're needing diamonds for some of your upper level spells, you know, something like... True Resurrection? Yeah, True Resurrection or something like that. This might be the way to do it because i think the next thing we need to breach is how exactly are we getting into this elemental plane again there's besides one having, more okay there's one more hazard my apologies earthquakes earthquakes on the plane of earth no <laughs> because the plane of earth is constantly shifting it is constantly in motion you get big earthquakes like to the scale of it just says you just drop the earthquake spell which is an eighth level spell I like it. So periodically there'll be an earthquake and the tunnels will collapse and you just got to hope that whatever patch of tunnel that you're in doesn't collapse. Or if it does, you hope for one of those ghost tunnels really fast. Come on, help. (laughs) The earthquakes are one of the big reasons why the Tao keeps so many slaves is to maintain the tunnels, to keep them clear, to keep them going so that trade can continue and because their numbers just might tend to drop a lot due to earthquakes (laughs) yeah that too all right so now we're talking our natural portals how we getting here how we getting here again as we said underdark i mean that's yes there are portals in the underdark they look kind of like faintly swirling earth funnels is what how they were described when i was reading about them and they go both directions they go both ways oh my (laughs) You just have to hope that whenever you get done doing whatever it is that you're doing in the plane of Earth, you can actually get back to that portal. Right. And again, where the elemental plane Earth shifts so much, this is definitely a challenge or a danger. You're less likely to be able to strike a deal with the Tao to get back out like you would an Ifrit or a Jinn. Absolutely. I would actually consider sinkholes. 
sinkholes would be a great place to have a natural crossing. That would be really fun. I was thinking a quicksand pit would be kind yeah, of perfect. Absolutely. Yes. You know, just that whole I'm sinking, I'm sinking, I'm sinking, I'm under, and then you drop in. Oh, wait. <laughs> and one of the cool things about the Great Dismal Delve in third edition is that it's so expansive and it touches on so many different locations that it is canon rumored that there are connections to all of the planes within the Great Dismal Delve. And this makes perfect sense where a lot of the other planes have at least some sort of mirror or connection with the Underdark as well. So again, those would tie those together fairly well. Even on the elemental plane of fire, there's still terra firma beneath your feet. So it would make a lot of sense to have a portal between plane of fire ground and the plane of earth ground. I think if you were going to find a link between the plane of earth and the plane of air, it would most definitely be one of those void pockets. Oh yeah, you could definitely find a pocket of air in the plane of Earth. I would see it as being very uh, like choked with dust and debris. I mean, it would be one of those where you sort of almost like if you have one of those canister vacuum cleaners <laughs> where you can see what's going on on the inside. Yeah. And when you're running it and you're going over a particularly dirty patch of floor, all that junk just swirling around on the inside... That's how I see it. I could see that too. And I would almost say as a DM that if you took one of those portals from the plane of earth to the plane of air, that when you come out in the plane of air, you wind up in one of those smoke clouds that we discussed previously. That or maybe you're on one of the earth moats. Yeah, that'd be a possibility as well. And then you have to figure out how to explain to the djinn whose earth moat you just landed on what you're doing there. (laughs) What you doing here, buddy? At least the djinn tend towards lawful and good, so they would be a little more amenable to listening to you. Right, you're going to have a little bit better chance to roll that diplomacy check. Absolutely. And one of the things about the Great Dismal Delve, having all of these portal connections, is the reason why people don't use it is because people are afraid of the Tao. Yeah, the Tao. Why don't people want to go to the planet of Earth? The Tao. What's the biggest problem in all the planes? Probably the Dow. Who are some of the biggest douche nozzles in the D&D universe? The Dow. The Dow. <laughs> yeah. To the point where even deities don't use the portals through the Great Dismal Delve. It's just not worth the hassle. It's not worth the hassle. And the Dow are known to keep grudges for basically ever. They have far exceeded the acceptable levels of douchebaggery. Yes. By far. Yeah, you could hear them screaming yeet as they passed (laughs) that level. (laughs) There there was the signpost, and you just hear them yeeting by it. Oh my, yeah, that probably. They probably stole it and said, hey, this is metal, this belongs in our city now, just to piss everyone else off on the way. Yeah, really, it's hard to think of some bigger douche nozzles than the Tao. The other way you get into the plane of Earth, which is kind of cool, Morden, he's just like, yeah, you know what? You're a good dwarf. You're doing some digging. Hey, I know a spot you might like. And he'll just port you over. Blink. Yeah. (laughs) Just because, you know, why not? Just some divine favor. That's probably the safest, most secure way to get in. Because if Morden's going to take the time to port you over to that nice mithril vein or that nice gem vein, he's probably going to run some interference between you and the Tao as well. So... Yeah. If, if you can Just win yourself some divine favor, that might not be the worst way to go. All right. I think that's about got it for what I've got. Yeah. I mean, that kind of wraps things up for me, too. So we get to end this week at least on a happy note. So end this week, get some divine favor. Smiley face. <laughs> Smiley face. 
Stick it to the slavers. Absolutely. So I think the next one of these we're going to be doing is going to cover the transitional elemental planes. So the four little wedges in between each of the prime elemental planes. Or as I like to call them, the in-betweeners. The (laughs) in-betweeners. And then if we have a little bit of time, just touch on the elemental chaos. There's not a lot there. So it shouldn't take us too terribly long to cover over that. But that's going to be the next thing that we do. Awesome. I'm definitely looking forward to it. There are some really cool things in some of the transitional planes. So thank you for joining us and listening once again. If you have any comments or suggestions or ideas that you want us to run with, send us an email at undercommontaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing my Shakespeare and Insult page a day calendar inspired RP prompts six days a week through our Twitter account and then cross posted to our Facebook and Instagram accounts at Undercommon Taste. We are now on Patreon. So if you want to support us a little bit financially, uh, you can go over to patreon.com slash Undercommon Taste. And we have a couple of different patron brackets that you can choose from. Yeah, definitely. If you catch the Patreon, we do have our sheet write-ups, which you can find. We'll have our basic ones on our Twitter page, but we have some of our special ones, the Gloaming Court. The Coral Court, the Gloaming Court, and the Wild Court are all patron exclusives. Exactly. So So all of our free stuff has been ported to Patreon. So you can go to Patreon and search it and it's a little bit easier to navigate and find now. So you don't have to go scrolling through our Twitter feed. And if you like, we've got some extra special shiny stuff in there too that again will be made available to our patrons that we haven't posted for just our free stuff as well. Yes. The Sealy and Unsealy Court, so the Summer and Winter Court, were the free write-up that's available to everybody. But the other three courts are available patron exclusive so if you want to check that out uh and it's for all patron levels so even the the kobold level which is the three dollar a month gets access to all of our written content exactly also our podcast you can find our podcast we're pretty much in all the podcast aggregators now so apple itunes spotify iHeartRadio, google as always Give us a review, give us a comment, and this will help boost our visibility as well so we can bring you more content. Uh, Thanks again for joining us, and we will see you next week. Happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at Undercommon Taste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCT Homebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmaryccrowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.